Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. We're going to be looking at a few uh, verses from Psalm 2. We've been on a little bit of a series of sorts here in the park on the uh, intersection between the church and the world. And we've looked at some different aspects of this. What does it look like for the church to be in the world? What is the message that the church has for the world? Uh, And and, uh, just a few different themes like this. We're going to be in Psalm 2 and kind of looking a little bit at the Lord's disposition to the world and his offer of hope that he gives. Let's start in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the hope of the gospel and pray that you might help us to find hope in the passage in front of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. During the time of the judges... You may recall that there was no king in Israel. The Bible tells us during this time in Judges 17 and verse 6 that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This phrase is, in a sense, the tagline of the book of Judges. It may as well also be a tagline for 21st century America as well, fueled by the expressive individualism that was produced by the Enlightenment 21st century America has become so individualistic that nobody will settle for anything less than his or her customized, individualized buffet of preferences, religion, morals, food, comfort, and lifestyle. Like one of those uh, Coca-Cola freestyle machines, we will never be content unless we can make every last choice about our lives. The temperature must be just right, the food must be just right, the entertainment must be just right, the religion must be just right. And in the days of the judges, this took shape in a very specific way. Israel served the false god Baal. Baal was a Canaanite god, the prominent one in fact, a god of the culture that Israel found herself living in. She was surrounded by Baal worship. And instead of denouncing this false god, she continually flirted with it until she finally and eventually came to embrace it. And it remains true today, of course, that if we are to defeat the false gods among us, we must not tolerate them or flirt with them, but rather denounce them outright. It was believed that Baal, this false god, according to one writer, is pictured as descending into the netherworld, the domain of the god Mot. That descent was evidently part of a cycle intended to coincide with the cycle of the seasons. And so, of course, in order to bring on the rainy season, that is uh, to produce fertility amongst their crops, they had to kind of coax Baal to come up out of the netherworld. This was done through religious rituals involving human sacrifices, religious prostitution, and sexual immorality. In Judges chapter 6, God's people, the Israelites, are unashamedly worshiping this false god. The surrounding culture eventually won the hearts and the minds of God's people so that they corrupted themselves and were sucked into this prevailing worldview. In the middle of this chaos, wickedness and sin, God calls to a man named Gideon and tells him to destroy the Israelite altar to Baal and to replace it with an altar to the Lord God. Next to the altar was a wooden pole, which was an idol of another Canaanite god, Asherah. She was the fertility goddess. God told Gideon to use the Asherah pole 
as wood to burn an offering on. Too afraid to carry out this task by day, Gideon destroyed the altar in the middle of the night. Israel woke up to a broken down altar, the cut down Asherah, and the altar to God built on top of it. The men of the town cried out to Gideon's father, Joash, in Judges 6, in verse 30, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Of course, you know the rest of the story. God spared Gideon's life and ended up using him to defeat the Midian forces. And if there's anything that we could learn or take away from this account of Gideon, it is that we do not defeat the darkness by embracing it, or by pretending that it doesn't exist, or by negotiating with it, or by politely asking it to leave, but by confronting it head-on with truth. I hope that within your bones there exists a fire, a righteous anger against the world and the deception of the world. I hope you have inside of your bones a drive to see the gospel spread, to go forth, to conquer lands and peoples, and to reclaim territory for King Jesus. I hope that you long for our own community, our own town, our own country to come to Christ and to put off sin and wickedness and wrong thinking and values that run counter to Jesus Christ. As Christians, it is true that we are passing through this land and that this land is not our home. However, we long to see and we long to bring some of the residents of the city of destruction with us to the celestial city. And the way that we do this is through faithfulness to the word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, the apostle Paul writes, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And the Bible gives to us passages that indicate that we are to appropriately challenge the world. Just consider a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. No stray thoughts. No thoughts in my own mind that are permitted to go outside of the supreme task of glorifying God. And just like Gideon destroyed the pagan gods, the pagan altars of the day, so too we are called as Christians to destroy modern pagan gods. But we're up against a challenge that cannot be won in human strength. We are at war at a level beyond our own abilities. In 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 4, Paul again writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. When we say to the world, don't go this way, go this way, we find out that according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the verse we just read, that there are spiritual forces at work which blind the minds of the unbelievers. Of course, we were once this way as well. We are seen in the world's eyes as fools, even though we are bringing a message that gives life. We still have false gods today. We may not have a community altar to Baal with an Asherah pole next to it, but we still have false gods. Today, 
We have wrapped our gods in a thin veneer of secularism and materialism. And we are charged to go after the world like Gideon to challenge the false gods and to present the hope of the gospel for all to hear and believe. That is why we are here as a church. That's why we exist. And my hope today is that perhaps a fire would be placed inside of your bones to go out and impact the world. God's activity in this present world can be divided into two categories. On the one hand, God is judging sinners. And on the other hand, God is redeeming sinners. He is busy about making a people for his own name, calling them out of their sin, calling them out of the domain of darkness and into a relationship with himself, into the light. And Psalm 2 is a passage in scripture, a very well-known passage in scripture that gives to us both of these realities. You have here in Psalm 2 a picture of the kings of the earth or the rulers of the earth or the nations or the political leaders and they are taking counsel with one another and they find themselves working against the Lord and against his anointed which is Jesus. Look down in your Bible at Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3. We read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. One writer comments on this and says, let the heathen rage plotting their revolutions. We, we will plan and do worship. And as we explore this connection between the church and the culture, we understand that this really is the distinction. This is, uh, at least in practice, the distinction between the two. The church is busy about worship, and the heathen are busy about raging. The word rage means to be in tumult or commotion. And one of the things that we learn from this passage in Psalm chapter 2, one of the central things that we learn in Psalm 2, is that there is no such thing as neutral territory. Either you are for Christ or you are against Christ. You are in Christ or you are outside of Christ. But there is no neutral middle ground. Every action taken by government, every action that you take, will be either for Christ or against Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, himself says in Matthew 12 and verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And the psalmist here, picking up on this reality that there is no such thing as neutral territory, presents the world as obviously raging against the Lord. There are numerous ways, of course, in which the world does this thing, One very simple way in which people rage against the Lord is by refusing to seek out divine wisdom. Almost every outreach I've ever uh, tried to connect with, even in our own community, says the exact same thing over and over again. There is a a thread that kind of links the vast majority of them together. And that is, they say, now just so you know, when you come and serve here in this outreach, you are not permitted to speak about God, religion, or the Bible. And I know there are some, and I praise the Lord for that, but many, many, many of them do not. One must immediately recognize 
that these leaders of these organizations have already at the outset chosen sides. You see, God has not given us the option for neutral territory. You either gather with me or you scatter. And when those people come along and say that we are not permitted to speak about King Jesus, they have already chosen sides. One writer talks about this and really refutes the pluralistic uh, theories of our own day, kind of this pluralist idea where as a nation we can kind of come together and set our religion aside and all come and find some shared ground, some shared common values. He says, We cannot help but see how far the infallible moral instruction of this psalm is removed from the pluralist political theories of our day. By contending that civil policy should not be based on or favor any distinctive religion or philosophy of life, but rather balance the alleged rights of all conflicting viewpoints, pluralism ultimately takes its political stand with secularism in refusing to kiss the sun and serve the Lord with fear. Contrast this, our modern way of thinking through this, to kind of set aside all of our values and all of our religion and somehow come into the public sphere in some sort of a neutral fashion. We can find our shared values, even though all of our underlying foundations are conflicting with one another. Contrast this with the words of Noah Webster, of course, the Noah Webster of Webster's Dictionary, who says this, Noah Webster said, in my view, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. But alas, we are not there as a nation. Ultimately then, those who oppose the Lord cast off divine authority. They cast off divine restraints. This can be clearly seen in verse 3 of Psalm 2, where he says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. The words of the Lord are too restrictive for us. The, the rules of the Lord, are too, they restrain us too much. Let us cast off his restraints. Various movements in America today are defined simply by casting off restraints. People want to cast off biblical restraints. Restraints that God says are good and restraints that God says lead to human flourishing. People want to cast those off and in the theme of the book of Judges, do what is right in their own eyes. And Psalm 2 in addition to telling us what the heathen are doing, it actually gives to us the divine disposition towards these people. How does God think about people who want to cast off his rules? How does God think about people who are at war with him? And verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The divine choice here is mockery. God mocks people. The word derision means to mock, to deride, or to ridicule. The Lord mocks the heathen. Not only does he do this, verse 9, <coughs> excuse me, says that the Lord breaks them. In verse 9, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
The Lord does not compromise. He does not yield ground or yield territory. The Lord will share his authority and the Lord will share his kingship with no one. The Lord advances and he has all authority. Every knee will bow. We would do well to consider what side we find ourselves on. Now there is hope even in Psalm 2. Just consider verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And we would echo verse 10. Be warned. We call out to our own community. Crossview Church here in this very public spot. We call out to our own community and we exhort you to be wise. We call out to our own community to take heed. We exhort you not to be deceived by those who would tell you that you can follow Christ and keep your false idols. One of the teachings of the false teachers in Israel was peace, peace, when there was no peace. And we would warn you to take heed. What we are exhorting you to do today is to consider very carefully the last two verses of Psalm 2, which says this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may wish to write in the margin of your Bible that this is, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. The Son here is an obvious reference to Jesus Christ. And we are calling our community to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be right with God the Father, then you need to love the Son. Now I want to give a message to all of the believers that are here today. Those of you who are trusting in Christ, you are among the group of people who will worship God for all of eternity. You will recite Revelation 4 in verse 11 for all of eternity, which says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If that is you as a believer in Christ, and you are among those who will worship God for all of eternity, I want you to know that time is of the essence, and we are to go after this world for the sake of King Jesus. During the introduction, I uh, told us the story of how Gideon went after the false idols of the day by destroying their pagan altar and raising up an altar to God in its place. There's a similar story from church history that goes like this. The bristling forests of northern Europe were inhabited by barbarian tribes who sacrificed animals and worshipped nature spirits among the trees and beside the streams. Any missionary who ventured among them with any hope of conversions had to demonstrate the superior power of Christianity. The most famous incident tells of one 8th century missionary named Boniface who marched into a shrine in Germany, the sacred forest of Thor, the god of thunder. The cult object was a massive oak. Boniface, as the story goes, took an axe to it. 
Just as he leveled the first stroke, a mighty breath of wind from God toppled the tree. The pagans marveled and were converted. Boniface used the wood to build a chapel. In the same way, we are not to negotiate with the values and the philosophies of the world, but rather to take an axe to them. We are to build up structures to the Lord on their ashes. It is said of Noah Webster, if he demolished a structure by his attacks, he labored diligently to raise another and a better one in its place. And that is what we are called to do. If the values of the world must be demolished, we must build better ones on top of them. Likewise, one author again says of Webster, he recognized that the only effective defense against the influence of alien philosophies of government or education was to construct permanent foundations based on the word of God. That is what our culture needs. Not compromise, not flirting with the values of the world, but to take an ax to them and build our foundations on the word of God. That is the hope of our nation. Do not apologize for chopping down pagan altars. Do not apologize for seeking to convert this dark and pagan land. And so Christian, take heart because you serve the king. Jesus wins. Love him enough to obey him and love others enough to die for them. And then if you are someone here who is an unbeliever, who is apart from Christ, I have a message for you today. And we'll take this directly from Psalm 2. Kiss the sun. That is, pay homage to the sun. That is, submit to King Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. This message is for all this message is not just to the people who are sitting here, but those who perhaps may hear me, those who are at the park. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ will bring you into submission. Listen to the passage. It says, be warned. Take heed. Listen up. Pay attention. But the passage doesn't leave it there. It also says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you are one who is not in Christ, take refuge in him. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus will save you. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the word. We thank you for your continued kindness to us. We pray that you would help if there is someone here today who does not know Christ, that they would repent and believe in the gospel. I pray that you'd strengthen uh, the believers present here so that we might go after the philosophies of the world unashamedly, taking an ax to their foundations and raising up on its ashes the foundation of the word of God, knowing that you... Uh, your, and your word is sufficient in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.